your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24, let me, let me read the verses we'll be kind of considering this morning. Luke 24, verse 1. The author Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. When they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the, to the eleven and to all the rest. Now Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the rest of the women with them were there. They were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they were not believing them, but Peter stood up and ran to the tomb, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away by himself, marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them were going that same day to a village named Emmaus, which was sixty stadia from Jerusalem, and they were conversing with each other about all these things which had happened. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself approached and was going with them their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are, you are discussing with one another as you are walking? And, and they stood still looking sad. And one of the named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And he said to them, the, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, was a mighty prophet indeed in word and the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us astounded us when they were at the, the tomb early in the morning and not finding his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all, the, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to, the, to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now clearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and after breaking it, he was giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? They stood up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and 
found gathered together the eleven and those with him, and were saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they were relating their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. December of 1944, during the final months of World War II, a Japanese lieutenant named Hiro Anada was stationed in Lumbang, a tiny island in the Philippines. Within weeks of his arrival, a U.S. attack forced the Japanese combatants into the jungle, but unlike most of his comrades, Onada remained hidden on the island for nearly 30 years. See, he had convinced himself for, for an entire three decades that the war had never ended. And as soon as the war was over, uh, leaflets were, were dropped on the island to inform the stragglers there that Japan had surrendered on August 15, 1945. But Onada thought that it was fake news perpetuated by the enemy. He remained in the wilderness among stinging, stinging ants and snakes, living on a diet of banana skins, coconuts, and stolen rice, convinced that the enemy was, was trying to starve him out. Japanese search parties were sent, but he assumed they were prisoners forced against their will, Photos from family members somehow left for him were believed to be doctored. He, 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 he heard jets flying over during the Korean War, but he thought it was a Japanese counteroffensive. Newspapers dropped on the island were deemed Yankee propaganda. And Onada wrote in his memoir after the, after the ordeal that he and another comrade that was with him there, quote, had developed so many fixed ideas that we were unable to understand anything that did not conform to them. Finally, an encounter with a, an eccentric Japanese explorer named Norio Suzuki resulted in an agreement. If Suzuki could bring Onada's commanding officer to the island with direct orders to lay down, Onada would comply. And Suzuki's mission was a success and Onada finally returned to Japan in 1974. This story reminds me of just how many of us live our lives completely unaffected by a monumental historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. According to Luke, the book where our passage for this morning is found within, Jesus his resurrection inaugurated a new era, a new age, a new way of how life works. But sadly, like the story of this Japanese soldier, we often live our lives as if we still haven't heard that Jesus rose from the dead. We, too, have these fixed ideas about how, about how, about our old lives in an old system, and we're unable to receive anything that does not conform to these old standards. Remember that the thesis of the Gospel of Luke is that, is that, 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 that Jesus Christ has transformed the, the course of history. That Jesus is the pinnacle of history. That Luke writes of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all theology and how that reality should then affect the way we live. Jesus has come into the world one way, and when he left the world, he 
sets in motion a radically different reality. And it's the resurrection that is the linchpin of this transformation. But at the beginning of chapter 24 here, if you were paying attention as I read the passage, right after Jesus rises from the dead, we have a little problem. And the problem is none of his followers believe that he's alive. And in order to understand a little bit about this unbelief that that pervades the first half of chapter 24, you have to remember that the, the kind of the, you have to remember the kind of people the disciples were before this chapter. They're presented as being clueless. They're portrayed as being knuckleheads, foggy-brained people. They're, they're seen as being spiritually slow. They don't, they don't really get Jesus. They don't really understand what he's talking about us, uh, talking about. And they're a lot of, and they're a lot like us at times, uninspired, disengaged, and faithless. Just to see what I mean, go to Luke chapter 18 uh, for a moment. Luke 18, 31 through 33. And um, Luke writes this. But when he took the twelve aside, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be completed. This is according to... The word is according to the plan, guys. Verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have flogged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. This statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They're clueless. They don't get it. And so the burning question of the hour at the beginning of chapter 24 is this. Will life really change for God's people after the resurrection when his people are knuckleheads? Does does Jesus, by virtue of the resurrection, does he really turn spiritually foggy people into people who live transformed lives. Will they accept that the war has been won? Will they come out of the jungle of unbelief? And my goal for this morning's passage for you and myself is this, that Jesus' resurrection would change the way we live. Even if it's just a little bit. My prayer is that His resurrection would make a tangible difference, noticeable impact in every tangent of our lives, even if it's just a little bit. The way we do relationships, the way we treat our wives or husbands, the way we raise our children, the way we work at our place of employment. My hope and prayer is that Jesus' empty tomb will affect our mood, our feelings, our thought life, even a little bit. I, I, I pray that this empty tomb would impact all, all, all of our plans, all of our goals, all of our ambitions. I, 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 would, I would love if it would radicalize our lives, but I'll just take just a little bit. A little movement toward Christ is my, is my goal and my prayer and my hope. And so I'm going to be focusing on verses 13 through 25 of chapter 24, but I will briefly cover the first 12 verses for some context. Verses 1 to 3, a new age has begun. 
The first three verses of chapter 24 provide the backdrop of all that happens in the rest of chapter 24. Something monumental has happened, and the question is, how are the disciples going to respond? Verses 1 through 3 says, Now on the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This new reality of history begins with an empty tomb. This empty tomb now signifies that a new era of God's plan for the world has begun. It symbolizes that everything is different now. That your life should be different because of it. Because an empty tomb is a very strange thing at a cemetery. They're usually filled with dead bodies. But now, there's a tomb and it's empty. Next time you ever find yourself discouraged, I want you to just read the end of verse 3. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Then I want you to tell yourself that what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking is not true because they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. These verse, this verse, these words should be like a cold bucket of water to grab our attention. They should grab us. It should shake us from our spiritual slumber and say, wake up. Everything is different now. Because these women did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. A new age has dawned. Look at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week. This is an important statement. The seed of new creation has been planted in the reality of the resurrection. This is a significant statement. Uh, now on the first day of the week, you don't want to pass over this quickly. And before we move on from that, that, first, that first clause of verse 1, we, we, we want to ask ourselves, what other significant act of God happened on the first day of the week? This, this, these first words of verse 1 should be a deja vu moment. We just say, hmm, something else happened on the first day of the week. And our minds should go to Genesis chapter 1 when God began creation on the first day of the week. You should say, aha! On day one, what did God say? Let there be light. In fact, Mark's Gospel says this about the first day of the week when Jesus rose. Mark, Mark 16.2 And very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb and the sun had risen. But, so what, is, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say this, that God began creation on the first day of the week and Jesus is raised on the first day of new creation. That new creation has been birthed. That it's begun. Let there be the light of salvation from this day forward. Let there be the light of the gospel and of and the resurrection and of the second coming of Christ. Because it's on this first day of the week 
where history makes a, a massive shift toward new creation, toward Eden, toward the kingdom of Christ. And by the way, this is why the church meets on Sunday instead of on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, because on the first day of the week, the church tells the world that new creation has dawned, that everything is different because Jesus Christ rose on this day. A new age has dawned in chapter 24, but again, the problem is this. The followers of Christ, they don't believe it. And so their unbelief must be overcome in verses 4 through 8. If Jesus' resurrection changes everything, then it, then it needs to be believed first, right? God's people are going to need to believe there's an empty tomb and a risen Lord. They're going to, and they're going to need to understand that with that resurrection, there has been a, a setting in motion of the second coming of Christ. That that final event is now online. It's a go. And so the ladies discover in verse 3 an empty tomb, and in verse 4 they, they find two angels. Two men suddenly stood near them. And they're, they're, they're standing in dazzling clothing. And this is a fascinating word, the word dazzling. It's found just one other time in Luke. And that one other time is in Luke 17.24 as Jesus talks about his second coming. Jesus says this, For just like the lightning, that's the word, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And these two angels in verse 4, they're wearing their lightning uniform. They're dressed for the occasion. On one hand, they're there because, according to Scripture, every fact needs to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Luke is saying that we have witnesses of this. But on the other hand, messengers become the message about the eschatological implication of the resurrection. They're there to symbolize and illustrate that the resurrection is the button that God presses to launch new creation, culminating with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The plan of God is turning the corner on the way to the finish line when Jesus rises from the dead. We are, we are, we are in all systems go for the second coming of Christ. And so, everything is different. Everything has changed. And the two messengers ask the women in verse 5, who are terrified, and they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men, and the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? The war is over. Come out of the jungle. What are you here for? Don't you know reality has been transformed? Why are you living in the old system? Because before you lived and then you died. But now the world works in a brand new, different way. Now in Christ you live and then you die and then you rise from the dead in glory. Death has been defeated. So why are you here? What's happening now in chapter 24 is, is, is exactly what Jesus said would happen. 
See, there is a way to live like Jesus is dead. Like he's a distant memory. And there is a way to live like Jesus has risen. You live like Jesus is dead. That's the way you live before you, God saved you. Yes, the gospel forgives you of all your sins, but the gospel also introduces you to a new reality, to the right reality. So we need to stop playing it so safe. We need to stop being so quiet about Jesus. Because Jesus' resurrection gives us a, a real kind of invincibility. Because if death can't beat us, what else can? When death is conquered, you're, you're basically invincible. So we need to live like it. We need to act like it. We need to talk like it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he expresses this resurrection invincibility by mocking death. You, you know when you feel invincible? When you know you're the best in a group? When you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you have this conviction that nobody can beat you, what do you usually do? You mock your opponent. You boast. You say, man, what do you think you got? You, you, you've got nothing on me. And, and Paul mocks death at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is, your, where is your sting? Now, the sting of sin, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the victory of the resurrection. This is the type of spirit a believer should have, a spirit of invincibility. I mean, I have young kids, and I'm, there are times I'm worried, but there are other times, by the grace of God, I say, you know what? Everything is different now. Everything is different now. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death because Jesus has risen. This new reality is here, but, but to, to, uh, to see this new, new reality, you, you need to embrace the resurrection. And that's what the Lord Jesus begins to do in verses 8 through 12, from a first century perspective, Jesus uses the least of these to try to convince the apostles about the truth and reality of the resurrection. Women in the first century, they were the least uh, appreciated, they, they, they were the least valued, but here in verse 8, they're the only ones who remember Jesus' words in verse 8. Uh, go back to verse 6 and 7. The, 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 the angels say to the, to the group of women, he is not here, verse 6, but he has risen. Remember? Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? Verse 8, and they remembered his words. The, the lights went on. So they, can, they, they attempt to convince the apostles about what Jesus said to them too. 
Verse 9, they returned from the new tomb. They reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the rest of the women with them were there. They were telling these things to the apostles. But you know what? For the apostles, the light didn't go on. They were too proud to believe. Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they were not believing them. They had this old standard by which to interpret life, and any news and any type of uh, report that did not conform to this old standard of the way they interpreted life, they just simply refused. They're still clueless. They're still foggy brain. And this is a problem. Because if everything has changed, and Jesus' own apostles don't believe it, this thing, is, this thing is in trouble. Even in verse 12, uh, Peter stood up, ran to the tomb. He looked in. He saw the linen wrappings, and he went by himself, marveling at what happened. Peter's close, but marveling isn't the same thing as believing. Even Peter has a problem. So this is the drama of chapter 24. This is the drama. Can Jesus convince his people that everything is different now. And so he overcomes our unbelief in verses 13 to 35. In verses 13 to 35, commonly known as the road to Emmaus, this passage highlights the depth of our spiritual ignorance and the height of Jesus' grace and power in overcoming our unbelief. Verse 13 begins with the two of them. Again, it, this, the, Luke knows that you need two or three witness, witnesses to confirm every fact, and these two men parallel the angels in, in the verses that we saw before. They were associates of the apostles. They were with the apostles when the women told them that there was an empty tomb. But more than that, they, they represent the spiritually ignorant. They represent all of us who have such little belief in the resurrection. And in verse 14 and 15, they're, they're conversing with each other. They're having this intense discussion about Jesus Christ. They're debating about a Jesus they don't know very well. They're talking about a Jesus whose word they don't believe in very much. They're, they're so clueless that they don't even recognize him as he walks up to them in verse 15. Jesus himself approached and was going with him. The resurrection has already taken place. Jesus is standing right in their face. And his followers are blind. Look at verse 16. Their eyes were prevented, prevented from recognizing him because their view of Jesus is still incomplete. They don't have the total picture of who Christ is. They have pieces, but they don't have the full puzzle. In order to recognize Christ, we need to understand all of who he is. We need to receive all of him. Because sometimes, to just get part of him right, to just get half of him correct, prevents you from knowing him at all. If you think Jesus is loving, but 
not holy, you probably don't know him very well. If you think he was a good man but not God, you don't know Jesus at all. If you think Jesus was God and not man, you, you don't know Jesus. God will not allow you to recognize his son if you only get him half right. If you think Jesus is your Savior and not your Lord, you don't know who Jesus is. If you think he was a perfect example to follow but didn't die for his for your sins, you don't know him. If you think that Jesus died but didn't rise from the dead, you have the wrong Jesus. You see, sometimes just having bits and pieces of Jesus is having none of him. Verses 17 through 19 is, is filled with irony. These knuckleheads, Cleopas and his friend, they actually think that the clueless one is Jesus himself revealing just how clueless they are. But on the part of Christ, he, he doesn't understand why they, don't under, why they don't understand. What are these words that you're discussing with one another as you are walking, verse 17? Why don't you get it? What's so hard about this? Verse 18, Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? They're shocked at Jesus' ignorance. He's shocked at their ignorance. This is like a comedy show. Jesus says, what things? What are you, what, what are you talking about? What's the confusion? Hello? Look, I'm here. I'm standing right up in front of you. I've conquered the grave. Hello. And so these two, these two men from verses 19 through 24, they have a conversation about Jesus to Jesus, whom they don't recognize. And we find out what they know about him. And surprisingly, they know more than we would expect. They actually know more than the average churchgoer today. What do they know about him? Verse 19, they said to him that the things about Jesus the Nazarene. They knew he was a Nazarene. They knew he was a real historical person, grew up in Nazareth, had a personal history, had parents, had a genealogy. Verse 19, he was a mighty prophet. They knew he was a prophet. They knew they were aware of Moses' uh, uh, prophecy of a, of a greater prophet arising from them. They knew he was mighty in deeds and words in the sight of God and all the people. They they didn't deny his miracles. Verse 20, they knew that, that Jesus died on the cross. The chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Verse 21, they, they knew that he was going to redeem Israel. They say, we, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Even in verse 22, they theoretically at least, they, they know that Jesus may have risen from the dead. They don't believe it, but it's a theoretical possibility. Verse 23, not finding his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. This is pretty good orthodoxy. So what were they missing? Why, in spite of all that they knew about the Lord, could they not see him? As he's standing right in front of them. And we're going to find out. In verses 25 through 27. Why are they so blind to Jesus? In verses 25 through 27, Jesus overcomes their unbelief with three things. A rebuke, 
a theological statement, and a Bible study. A rebuke, a theological statement, and a Bible study. He says to them first, a rebuke. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. He rebukes them. Because we are morally capable, morally culpable for our spiritual ignorance. If you know little bit, if you know just a little bit about Christ, it's because you don't want to know very much about him. And as earnest as these two men appear to be, they were simply unwilling to believe God's word. This is not complicated. And so Jesus rebukes them for their disobedient hearts. They were feigning inability, but it was really an unwilling heart. See, sometimes when one of my children, they don't want to do anything, sometimes they'll pretend they're too tired to do it. They're fine one moment, and then when I say, hey, you need to go to bed, all of a sudden they're extremely tired. Can't make it up the stairs. They feign an ability, but it's really an unwilling heart. Oh, slow of heart. This slowness of heart is on purpose. It's on purpose. Are we unable to receive Christ or, or are we just unwilling to receive Christ? Well, when it comes to receiving the gospel, it's actually both. You are unable, but you're also unwilling, which translates into this. If you're going to be saved, you must beg for God's sovereign grace as your only hope for salvation. But if you're never saved at all, it's all your fault because you're responsible for all your sins. But if you already know this Savior, if you already have come to him, inability is never the problem. It's just an unwilling heart. If you already know Jesus, you don't even get to pretend you have an excuse. You can never say, I'm tired, I can't do it. When you're cold toward Christ, when you're indifferent about the Bible, when you refuse to pray, when you, when you treat the church lightly, Jesus says, you're just being foolish. The slowness of your heart to embrace all of who Jesus is is an expression of the unwillingness of your heart. You just don't want to go to bed. You don't believe in the resurrection very much. Listen, we don't believe in the resurrection very much because we don't want to believe resurrection very much. Stop it, Jesus says. Jesus overcomes their rebellious heart through rebuke, and then he, he gives a, a theological statement in verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Very similar to 24, verse 7. Jesus said, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. 
This is a, a theological statement. This is a systematic theological summary. He's not citing a particular verse. He's just connecting all the dots. In order to redeem Israel and his people, Jesus has to die for sin. He has to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He must provide an atonement. It is necessary. Because God cannot forgive our sin without someone paying the penalty. God cannot compromise his righteousness for the sake of his mercy. Jesus' death for our sin satisfies God's righteousness as God pours out saving mercy for those who put their trust in his Son. So Jesus, in this one statement of verse 26, he is combining theology of the Passover lamb of Exodus, the theology behind the the sacrifices of Leviticus. He's bringing together all the passages throughout the Old Testament that speak of corporate identity and the theology of a leader suffering on behalf of his people. He's collating Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 into one big package. He's doing the same thing also about his resurrection and his going into glory. These two men couldn't recognize Jesus because they did not think deeply about Scripture. They didn't go far enough. They didn't go deep enough. They didn't spend time thinking about the theology behind the words of Christ. They were lazy when they received the truth. They didn't want to put verses and passages together. They were, they were allergic to a concordance. They were too busy for other things. How's your systematic theology? What's your systematic theology like? If you've been a Christian for more than five years, you should have already by now read through at least one systematic theology. When you become a member of our church, we literally give you a systematic theology book. And we're like, hint, hint. You need to read it. Because if your systematic theology is poor you're going to be lopsided in a lot of different doctrines. You you might know three things about faith, but you need to know six things about faith. You you might know five attributes about God when there's really ten major ones you need to know. And knowing the half the story might give you another God who isn't the God of Scripture. If you have a lopsided theology, you're going to live a lopsided Christian life. Systematic theology protects us from theological error, which is everywhere. I mean, every book, every YouTube sermon, there is error. And systematic theology protects you from that error. Systematic theology helps you not do more than you have to do for Christ. It helps you not do less than you have to do for Christ. Systematic theology is a shortcut to important life-giving doctrines that would take you decades on your own just reading the Bible. And yes, we get all of our theology from Scripture. All theology derives from, from Scripture. But we need to put it all together and organize all of it. And systematic theology does it for us. Systematic theology makes Jesus easier to see more clearly. And then thirdly, lastly, how does he overcome our unbelief? He rebukes us, number one. Number two, he gives us a systematic theology lesson. And number three, he leads a Bible study. Verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. 
man, if there was one thing I would love to do, I would love to go to a Bible study taught by Jesus. I mean, that would be awesome. Can you imagine? Hey, guys, it's Friday, 7 o'clock. Jesus is teaching the Bible study. We have thousands of people here. These men, they can't see Jesus standing right in front of them. What did they fail to do? They failed to believe. Look at the second part of 25. They failed to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. See, ultimately, these two men couldn't see Jesus because as much as they knew about him, they needed to know they needed to know a lot more about him. It was that simple. And so Jesus goes through, through the entire scripture from front to back. He points it all to himself. And because it was Jesus, he could, he could do it in one setting for most of us. For me, I need, a, I need a lifetime to teach this to you. It takes a lifetime of hard work to see all of Christ in all the scriptures. I'm in my seventh year here. We're, we're in Exodus. On Fridays, we got a lot. Of, we got a lot of work to do. Knowing Christ requires knowing all of His Word, and in case you haven't noticed, this is a really this is a really big book. It's massive. There's a lot of content, and that's on purpose. God wants you to to take all of who you are and spend the rest of your life studying this book. It's on purpose that it's this thick. By comparison, the Quran is about half the size of the New Testament. If you want to know all of Christ, you need to. If you want to experience all of His all of His love, then you need to know all of the Scripture, and that requires, listen to me, a passion, a great passion to know His Word. And and and. And this great passion to know God's Word, it expresses itself with a plan to read and study Scriptures. For a, a healthy Christian, every, every month you're thinking about your plan to read the Bible. Your plan to tackle Scripture. Every beginning of the year you're, you're thinking about, okay, what's, what's my reading plan going to be? Four chapters, four chapters, uh, maybe a book here, a book there. I'm going to study this book. I'm going to use these resources. I'm going go to I'm gonna go to this uh, website to, to l listen to sermons. It requires a plan. Do you have a plan for understanding God's Word? Passion for the Word translates into a, a desperate prayer life to know His Word. Because we need His Spirit to... Help us imbibe all that the Word teaches about all of Christ. A passion to know the Word translates into taking advantage of every opportunity when your church opens her doors to teach Scripture. At my old church in California and in Los Angeles, I mean, <laughs> there is like Bible teaching almost 24-7, seven days a week, it felt like. I went to Bible study on Friday night, two services Sunday morning, and then an evening, and then an evening service on Sunday night. 
four sermons a, a week, at least. Not including Saturday special events, midweek men's Bible study. And there were times where I was like, man, I, I, I was tired, you know, I, I, you know it's like Sunday 3 o'clock and, and the evening service, service is at 6, and I, would, and I would struggle within myself. I'm tired, I want to take a little break. I've had a long week. But if I, I might miss this passage of Scripture, it could really help me. I, I don't want to miss this. There were times I would drag myself to that Sunday evening service and I would say, oh, I thank you, God. I might have missed this because I so needed this right now. The passion to know God's word looks like a dying man looking for water in a desert. We led a, a ministry to a drug addicts like in California, led it for about five or six years. I'd go up to a, a, a state-run rehab center, teach every Wednesday night. Then one man, he uh, said, we need more of this. So could you, do, could, you, could you start teaching every Saturday too? And I was busy, I had stuff to do. And, and he looked at me and he, he begged me to come. We need this. We need this. We're going to die if we don't get more of this. And he was a dying man looking for water in the desert. And it humbled me. It was just basic stuff. It was, it was just the basics. And he was desperate for it. Instead, we're often like food critics examining every bite of our plate at a five-star restaurant. Are you desperate for Scripture? Are you desperate? See, that's, that's a passion for God's Word. A passion for God's Word is the resolve to do all of that diligently for the rest of your life. There's no way to Christ apart from His Word, and there's no way you can know the Word this way than, than by investing blood, sweat, and tears for an entire lifetime. That's what it takes. That's the minimum. What does it look like when Jesus overcomes unbelief and spiritual ignorance? Verse 28 through 32. See, as these two men, as they, as they learn about Jesus, as they have this new heart attitude after being rebuked, after learning this, a new systematic theology, after, after going through a Bible study with the Lord cover to cover, the, the man who was a stranger to them, the man they were flabbergasted at, now becomes a friend they are strangely drawn towards. Their interest in him changes. Look at verse 28 and 29. He approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going further. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us! Stay with us! For it is toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus comes into clear focus for them in verses 30 and 31. Look at verse 30. And it happened then that when he, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and after breaking it, he was giving it to them. 
this action, this description of what Jesus did in verse 30 is something we see earlier. Go to Luke 9.16 and it describes Jesus in the same way. Look at 9.16 and the feeding of the 5,000. And this is how it describes Jesus feeding the 5,000. Chapter 9, verse 16. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to them, he blessed them and he broke them and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Same description. We see the same description of this in, in the Lord's Supper on the night before he was killed. Look at chapter 22, 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 30, same kind of language as they're having this meal together. This is Jesus' signature move. This is a signature move. He's the provider. These are all images of when Jesus returns and he provides for all. And so after learning about him in the Old Testament, they recognize him in the New Testament. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. Then the lights went on and they recognized him. This new heart attitude, this new theology, knowing all of Jesus in the Old Testament, helped them recognize Jesus in the New they even get a glimpse of Christ into the future. This language, verse 31, again, we find elsewhere. That, 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 that those words, then their eyes were open and they recognized him. You see that language in Genesis 3-7 after Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. This is how Genesis 3-7 reads. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. There's this reversal of the fall going on in this, in this interchange of this meal together. No longer do they see the first Adam falling, they see the second Adam in victory, Eden. They get a glimpse of the new creation of the future in the face of Christ on this Resurrection Sunday. And once they were convinced from Scripture that Jesus had to die and rise in glory, his presence is no longer necessary. There's verse 31, and he, and he vanished from their sight. He no longer needs to be there because they believe in Christ from the Word. So he leaves. And verse 32 is remarkable because in their reaction, there is an absence of surprise. Look at verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was, he was opening the scriptures to us? Of course Jesus is alive. When he was teaching us the Bible, when we were convinced that he had risen, yeah, it, it totally makes sense that he was standing right before us. Three, day, three days after he died. This is a no-brainer. We're not surprised here. We already saw him in Scripture, and we believed it. And so seeing him in, per, in person is just a bonus. It, it just makes sense. 
So Jesus overcomes our belief, our unbelief, with the with the rebuke, with the systematic theology lesson, with the Bible study. And then after he lays down this foundation of believing in his resurrection, he puts the egg. Uh, the exclamation mark at the end with the appearance of Peter. So they, verse 33 and 34, they sit up that very hour. They return to Jerusalem. They found together the eleven, those with him, and they were saying, the Lord, he is really, the Lord has really risen and, and, and has appeared to Simon. This risen Jesus is everywhere. And the excitement is so great because there's different reports coming and in, coming into the, coming into where the disciples are. He's everywhere. And then in 30 through 40, the, he appears to the apostles himself. 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. They were startled and they were fright, frightened. They, they thought they were seeing a spirit. And in verse 36, he said to them, why are you troubled? Why, why do doubts Arise in your heart. Look at verse 38. He's right in front of them, and he says, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt when I'm right in front of you? Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And this is the crazy thing. Look at verse 41. And while they still were not believing, they still don't believe it. They're touching him. They see his nail-pierced hands and feet. And they're still not believing. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? What he did before with the two men, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He took them back to the word. And does it change them? Yes. Verses 50 to 53. Verses 52, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. What turned their hearts? It was the word of God. How can you know for certain that Jesus rose from the dead? Through his word. Some of you, some of you are thinking, well, well if, if Jesus appeared to me, I would truly believe that. I would really believe if I actually saw him, if I saw the resurrected Christ and touched him, then I would believe. This passage says no. That if you don't believe in the resurrection from the word, you wouldn't believe him if you saw him. If you don't believe the word about the resurrection of Christ, God could take you to heaven, you could see the glorified Christ, you still wouldn't believe it. You would ask God to take you back to the earth. Brothers and sisters, stop hiding in the jungle. Come out. Come out wherever you are. The word about Christ is true. You can believe it. The word about Christ is inerrant. It's infallible. 
Everything it says about Jesus' resurrection is true. The war has been won. And now the question is, does your life show it? Does your life show that you believe that everything has changed?